At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Well, hello and welcome to another Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. And today, Manisha, we're going to talk about some interesting new developments that you've been studying and writing about in the what you call, I think, the post-fentanyl phase, which is quite an interesting construct. So why don't you tell us what you've been doing? Sure. So we just put out a documentary called Beyond Fentanyl, and basically it's sort of looking at the new wave of the overdose crisis where we've sort of had the pill Oxycontin era, and then we had the heroin era, and then there was the fentanyl era, which rapidly increased the number of overdoses in the U.S. and Canada. And now we're sort of entering this new wave where the fentanyl supply itself is being contaminated with very potent drugs, including super strong benzodiazepines, including tranquilizers. And this is really wreaking havoc on drug users in certain communities, both in Canada and the U.S., And it seems to be a trend that we're going to see more of. It's sort of spreading. There's an endless supply of synthetic drugs that these drug suppliers can get, and they're sort of not regulated, so they're not technically legal, and so they're cutting them into the dope. And yeah, that's pretty much what I've been looking at for the last little while. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because of course, for most of us, fentanyl was the sort of the, the true horror the idea that fentanyl itself, but also the more powerful, the more potent derivatives like carfentanil were, were so powerful, so toxic. We didn't think anyone would want to do anything beyond that. But you're suggesting that, that things, things are changing. So why do you think that is? So, I mean, it's really hard to get a full picture without talking to people who are at the wholesale level in the supply chain. But basically, I think that you know, anytime a substance is regulated or banned, there it kind of creates a vacuum. And so, yeah. you know, in 2019, the U.S. pressured China to ban fentanyl. And up to that point, China was basically, there was finished fentanyl being shipped from China directly into the yeah. U.S. Yeah. and Canada. But after this ban was put into place, you know, we started to see an uptick in other substances being cut into the fentanyl supply. So now the Mexican cartels are buying the precursor chemicals, making the fentanyl themselves and trafficking it into the US. But beyond that, we're also seeing these other drugs getting cut into the supply. So I think it could be just supply disruption, you know, replace it with something that's Mm -hmm. legal-ish that mimics the same effects, you know. Okay, so that's just a sort of classic, just the whack-a-mole, isn't it? You prohibit one thing and then they come up for another hole. But I, I mean, there are, I suppose there is this, there are different pharmacologically. So are there concerns about additive effects? Uh, I mean, you did mention super strong benzos and we've had some 
exposure of that etezolam in Britain. And you think yeah. that's compounding the fentanyl problem because they're both respiratory suppressants? Yeah. So, yeah, you do have a tezolam in, I think Scotland had like kind of a bad issue with it. We did. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that tezolam, we're seeing a lot of that in Vancouver and British Columbia. And yeah, it is having a really negative impact because people are getting very addicted to both substances. And so they're getting withdrawal from both substances. But it's also like you've got the fentanyl effect, which is, you know, a downer, and then you have a benzo. And so people are really getting knocked out for hours at a time, falling asleep while they're driving, you know, being in some cases being sexually assaulted, being robbed, because they're completely knocked out, you know, much stronger than, you know, a heroin nod, for example. Yeah, because it's very well, once you've once you've been zonked on a powerful benzo, it is, it's very difficult to, to wake yourself up because it's basically suppressing all your cortex. So, whereas with opiates, they're working slightly more subtly, subconsciously or subcortically. So even with a moderate dose of an opiate, you can at least, you know what's going on, you're aware, you've got some memory. So are these all being used intravenously then? Or, I mean, or is it some kind of combination of all the intravenous or what? No, that's actually really interesting. So it is, I mean, people are still injecting it, but we're seeing almost like this resurgence of people smoking it too. And you would think, I mean, traditionally, like it's harder to overdose when you're smoking something, right? Like it's really the the IV drug use that typically causes overdoses. But now we're seeing that these drugs are so strong that people are ODing just from smoking them. Now, that is a really worrying thing because uh, we've always been, certainly in the UK and in in Holland, I'm not sure about Canada, you can correct me on that, but we've been pushing hard over the last 20 years to to get people to smoke rather than inject, not simply to, not just because you can reduce bloodborne viruses, but also because, you know, you know, we used to think you couldn't OD smoking because once you stopped breathing, fell over, then you could, you'd had to, you stop breathing it in. But, but now with, with these potent combinations, you can actually zonk yourself to a point where you might overdose even smoking. Yeah, unfortunately. And then, you know, in Philadelphia, there's the tranquilizers that are, it's like an animal tranquilizer that's being cut into basically all of their opioid supply. And so, you know, it's a tranquilizer. So you can imagine that effect. Yeah, I read about this in your your article. This is xylazine. This is this basically this, this veterinary anesthetic works to suppress noradrenaline, noradrenaline system. Yeah. Funnily enough, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but these drugs were a very long time ago. They started being developed as uh, anti-hypertensives. And then they they were, back in the 60s and 70s, group at Yale started using them to treat opiate withdrawal. But now you're seeing them being used to to potentiate. Yeah, because a lot of the opiate withdrawal is due to um, noradrenaline over norepinephrine overactivity in this and clonidine, which is a, the, one of the original variants of xylosine, there uh, that suppresses noradrenaline function. So you can actually treat. In fact, in the US, they just licensed a derivative of uh, clonidine called uh, lofexidine for treat- the treatment of opiate withdrawal as well. So you've got this paradox: it, you've got you've got medicines which are used to sedate sedate animals now being abused alongside opiates. This doesn't make a lot of sense to me as a pharmacologist, but. I guess if that's what people are buying, that's what they're taking. 
Yeah. I mean, one thing that's interesting is that people were telling me that they were scared to go into detox because they would, they don't have anything that can detox them from the train. They have detox, you know, medication for opioids, but not for this tranquilizer. And so a couple of people were sort of wondering if ketamine could be a possibility. And I was like, I don't know. I have no idea. Right. But it was an interesting idea. Well, there are two things. That is a fascinating question. Now, I've never come across anyone being dependent on an alpha 2 agonist like xylosine, so I, I can't comment on that. But but I imagine you probably do get a degree of rebound activity a little bit like you get in opiate withdrawal. So it might be quite challenging then, as they say, you know, because you couldn't use the drugs you'd normally use to deal with noradrenaline rebound won't work because you've become tolerant to them if you're abusing them. So that in itself is a fascinating question to which I don't have any answers at all. But and, and of compounding that, if you're withdrawing from a benzo, benzo withdrawal can produce quite a lot of delirium and, and confusion. So that wouldn't be good. But whether, yeah, ketamine is interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm actually sitting talking to you today from a, a new clinic we've set up uh, here in, in the UK in Bristol to do ketamine therapy for alcoholism. Oh, interesting. We're not using it as a detox. We're actually using it after detox to help people kind of review their relationship with the drugs. We're using it as a kind of psychedelic perturbation of thinking so that they can maybe reset their minds against against addiction and think differently. So I think the potential for psychedelics like ketamine to, to be treatments for addiction is actually quite strong. So yes, encourage the people that are talking about it to read up the literature. There's, there's been a study published by one of my colleagues um, in the American Journal of Psychiatry in, in uh, January this year, Celia Morgan, looking at alcohol, getting people to stop drinking. And there's a study um, out of New York by a guy called Dakwa, I think, who did some work on cocaine dependency. So, so it's an interesting concept using psychedelics to disrupt addictive. Yeah. I was just at a an Ibogaine clinic in yeah. Mexico like two weeks ago. Right. And yeah, it, they, it was a, well, we were following a woman who was from Texas and she's addicted to heroin and fentanyl. So she was in there to treat it. It was her second time using Ibogaine. And yeah, I guess the first time it worked, but she ended up a few years later relapsing. Well, a few years is pretty good. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've, I've been working in the field of heroin addiction for 30 years and we've never managed with conventional therapy Apart, obviously, methadone keep people for a long time, keep morphine, but traditional abstinence-based therapy, we've never managed to keep a single one of our patients clean for three months, let alone a year. So, so even even a year for that, that's actually a pretty impressive outcome for Ibogaine. That's yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know if you have any thought. I've never been quite sure why why they use it for withdrawal. Why don't they just let people come off the opiate and then give it to them? Do you, do you know why they they prefer to do it during withdrawal? Well, I mean, the place that we were at, they gave them morphine right, right. to sort of get them off of the fentanyl heroin. Right, right, so right. Morphine, 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 and then they kind of let them go into withdrawal for like 12 hours, right. and then they give them a big dose of Ibogaine. Yeah. Oh, okay, right. So it wasn't, they were actually taking them straight off the heroin and fentanyl into Ibogaine. They were yeah. using that intermediate, and that makes a lot more sense. I like that. Yeah. But, but the, my understanding is that the Ibogaine, the Ibogaine experience is quite prolonged. Is that what her experience was? 
Yeah, it was like 12 hours. And then the next day they give you a secondary sort of supplementary dose. Right, right. And she definitely was struggling the second day because we went and talked to her and she was not feeling good at all. Very drained, not in a good mood, like probably still in withdrawal. But now it's been like a couple of weeks and she's feeling a lot better. I'm actually supposed to do a follow-up interview with her tomorrow. So yeah, it's like 12 hours where you're tripping basically on the initial dose Apparently, it can even go longer. It could be up to like 20 hours. Yeah, I suppose it depends on how much you actually take. Isn't it? Yeah. Was, was, this, was this natural products or was it a pill? It was a pill. Okay. Yeah, so they, yeah capsules. They knew what the dose was anyway. That's some, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, people say it's weird. It's not the same as other psychedelics. It's often very ego disillusioned. You know, people feel that their ego disappears and they feel sometimes they say they've been, they were dead for, for hours or ever, and then they wake up and they're relieved. But often they say it's challenging but useful. So I hope it isn't her case. Yeah, apparently it's pretty unpleasant. It's not like a fun psychedelic. No, I think that's a really important point to make, actually. And I, I'll just throw this out there because, you know, we're doing a lot of work with particularly psilocybin to treat people with depression and uh, other disorders like anorexia. And, and often my colleagues, people who should know better, doctors, pharmacologists, they say, well, of course they're getting better because they're having a fun trip. But the reality is if you've got a problem like addiction or depression, the trips aren't fun. They're challenging. They bring up things that, you know, you've been repressing. And Ibogaine itself is, you know, peculiarly un, unenjoyable. You've got to, you only do it because you want to change, I think. Would you agree with that? Yeah, apparently you really have to be ready for abstinence as well, not just sort of a half measure. But yeah, it sounds very introspective and, you know, that can be unpleasant for people for sure. Yeah, are, are there therapists present during the experience as well? I mean, and is it one-on-one -on -one or how does it work? I've never been to it. Yeah, there's a therapist who talks to them beforehand and after, but in the room itself, it's just a nurse. I believe, and, and the patient. So it's not like an ayahuasca ceremony where you have a, a group around a, the campfire with a shaman. This is very much a medical kind of... It's medical, yeah. So that, I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? So Because I mean, there are people who've certainly found ayahuasca and maybe other indigenous psychedelic-type drugs like 5-methoxy-DMT as, as useful for their addictions. Is, have you come across anyone sharing that view? I haven't, I don't think I've come across anyone who is using like Toad or some of the other stuff for addiction per se. I am interested in finding out more about why people are using it, 5-MeO-DMT, because it seems to be becoming like more trendy. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, one of my friends who's also, he's a drug reporter as well, but he was telling me it's almost becoming like a status symbol within the psychedelics world where it's like wealthy Americans will go to these retreats and they, they're kind of thrill seekers and they want to do 5-MeO-DMT. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. It's like, you know, I've climbed a higher mountain than you, you know, I've done 5-Methoxy, yeah. you know, you've only done DMT, you know, <laughs> which is a bit sad yeah. really, isn't it? I mean, it's sad for the toad as well, because, you know, the toads are threatened. If people are scraping their stuff off the toad, you know, that's a really, you know, the the damage, actually, even the damage that is happening to peyote cactus from people looking for mescaline, you know, it is quite worrying that you can, we might lose these uh, indigenous species because, uh, as you say, 
rich white people want to go and get uh, a superior kind of high. But I think at least we're talking about it, and hopefully their social conscience will start kicking in. And of course, we can make synthetic, you know, we know how to make 5-methoxy and we, we know how to make DMT, so we don't have to get it from the native anymore. Yeah, I do know of some retreats that are doing it like synthetically now. Yeah, but I'm not sure, I, you may you may help me here. In Canada, so in America, in the USA, the Native American churches do have a religious exemption for mescaline peyote, don't they? Is that true for Canada too? Are there ex- religious exemptions for the native products? Yeah, there's religious exemptions. It doesn't even have to be a native, like a indigenous group. You can just apply for a religious exemption, I think. And yeah, so that has happened. Like it's starting to happen a little bit more. It's interesting kind of seeing like the frontier of how people push towards legalization. And, you know, there's kind of the religious exemption route and there's also often like a medical route. So in Canada, there's exemptions now being given out to people for like end of life care for psilocybin and as well as depression, I think. Yeah, I think kind of, I mean, I was at this conference, this uh, research to reality conference and a little plug, I'm going to do a a podcast with two of the organizers of that very shortly, but it was uh, a a very Canadian centric conference and it was great because I hadn't realized Canada is so ahead of the game and you Canadians were complaining, oh, we haven't moved far enough. And I'm thinking, wow, you've moved a lot further than most countries, certainly in the UK. You know, you do have a much more mature attitude to drugs in most Western countries. No, I mean, I think it's like, it's really, there's a, there's a long history here of like drug user activism um, and pushing the boundaries of that. Like if you look at Vancouver, they had the first safe injection site in North America. You know, they have prescription heroin, prescription fentanyl now, even for people who are addicted. So I yeah, they get, they're giving up prescription fentanyl now to get people off of the street supply. Oh, that's an extremely clever, sensible thing to do. But we're, we're coming yeah. up to that in a minute. Let's finish telling me why, why Canada is so progressive. Yeah, so I just think there's, there's a really rich history here of um, that type of activism. And, and so I think that, you know, and even with cannabis, it was just so, I mean, I grew up in British Columbia, which, you know, is sort of known for having very strong weed and having like this huge underground economy for cannabis. And so it was just very normalized, I think, you know, and yeah, I guess that combined with, you know, eventually when you, when you change people's minds, then that pushes the political spectrum, but it's really about the people, I think. I know 10 years ago, maybe 12, I was in Vancouver. I went to look at the, uh, the safe, I mean, the safe injecting facility. And I was blown away by, I think it was an old cinema that they'd converted. And it, oh, you know, these these separate places for people to inject. And, you know, with the, the professionals there to pick them up if they accidentally OD'd and, you know, respire them or give them an antidote. And, but what was even more impressive was the fact that they were then looked after. It wasn't just about injecting, it was about getting food and getting some advice and some guidance and giving people the opportunity to talk about other approaches if they wanted to. It was just such a humane thing to do. I was, I thought it was obviously, you know, stunningly uh, forward thinking. Yeah. You know, it's just starting to happen now in the US. In New York, there's two of them that have opened up. Are there? I didn't know that. Oh. Yeah. Those are the first two 
that are legally sort of sanctioned, but we'll see if more open up now. But yeah, it's just happening now. It's like decades after yeah. after other places. Well, we haven't got one yet in the UK. We actually had a meeting of my charity, Drug Science, uh, yesterday in Parliament, trying to um, get parliamentarians to buy into the uh, idea because we just need to change our the statutes around drugs a little to make it legal to do this because currently it's uh, you can if you provide a safe facility for someone to inject a drug you can be prosecuted for facilitating drug use which is you know potentially a long time in prison so no one wants to do it until they've got clarity that they're not going to be prosecuted but the government won't give that clarity so we had this this campaign trying to get politicians to sign up to a change but that very same day unfortunately uh, there was a vote against the prime minister which uh, was <laughs> which rather overshadowed people were much more interested in whether he survived and whether we could actually get Save injection rooms on the political agenda, but we'll keep trying because, you know, it, it's the only, well, certainly a proven way of reducing deaths, isn't it? Yeah. So go back no. to this prescribing. So, well, Mr. Habit, let me ask you a bigger question then. So, you, you know, you've been exploring the problems and the reasons why problems with drugs and the reasons why people take drugs illicitly. What do you think the right solutions are then? Now, how, what would you, what would you recommend to try to stop this ever increasing use of complex and dangerous substances? I mean, it's it's such a complex problem, but, you know, I think a couple things off the bat, for sure, more safe injection sites in the U.S. I mean, it's, it's badly needed. No one has ever died at one of these sites. You know, all overdoses are preventable. Like, they don't have to result in death. If someone is there who knows how to revive them, you know, they can. So that's one thing. I think a lot of people would argue at this point that we do need a safe supply of drugs, regulated drugs, because the supply, the illicit supply is just so toxic now that it's kind of like the train has left the station. I mean, it's not going to go back. It's not going to get milder. No. You know, it's not going to go back to the heroin days. People are going to be wishing that we still had heroin and they are. are. You're quite right. I saw today that the Taliban have started wiping out the poppy field. So one thing's for sure, we're not going to go back to, to the good old days of heroin because there won't be any heroin. So unless we make some in India and then make it available, which not which was not going to happen. So, you know, more and more, we're going to see people channel down these synthetic routes, the fentanyls, and more and more, that's going to be a huge problem for us. So, so absolutely. So knowledge of what you're taking is, uh, or even, you know, prescription for people who are addicted. But what what about things like um, antidotes and that? I mean, are there any plans to roll out naltrexone or naloxone in Canada? Yeah, naloxone. I mean, in Canada, you can basically get it at any pharmacy, and it's it's free. In the U.S., it's still more much more tightly regulated. It's sort of state by state now. But yeah, I mean, it should be available, obviously, like everywhere. You know, the pet store that I go to down the street has naloxone. <laughs> they have it on their window. It says, we have naloxone here. So yeah, naloxone sh certainly should be widely available and people should know how to use it. But, you know, drug checking, drug testing, yes. being able to test your drugs would probably be useful for a lot of people. Now, we've just started here in Bristol, where I'm sitting now, just a few weeks ago, it became the first certified government-allowed drug testing site in Great Britain. Wow. 
So we've actually made a bit of progress here. So what what's the situation about drug testing? Do you, is it in any sense formalized in Canada? Well, in the U.S., it's they don't really have it. It's which is not great because they don't know what's in the supply. Because if you're if you're only getting your information on what's in the drugs from overdoses, then you're looking at what's in people's bodies, which is not necessarily telling you what's in the actual drugs. So that's a problem. Yeah, in Canada, I mean, definitely in BC, like Vancouver and Toronto, they have drug checking. There are some agencies that do it in the US where they collect samples and they check. But in terms of actually being able to like, on a consumer level, get your drugs tested. You know, there are some places in Vancouver that do it, but I don't think that's particularly widespread. Mm. Yeah, well, we'd like to roll it out and uh, certainly to festivals in Britain. Yeah, festivals would be a good one to have it at. Yeah, we have this organization called The Loop, which is uh, campaigned strongly to the testing education. And I think it's had quite an impact on uh, helping people understand that some of the new cathinones that have come along like monkey dust, are actually very much more dangerous than the old cathinones that people used to use, like mephedrone, which, of course, is another example of banning a relatively relatively benign drug and ending up with drugs which are 20 times more potent, like with the fentanyl. So uh, what, what, what is the status of things like bath salts? I mean, are, you, are they still being used much in the States, in Canada, or is everything switched to fentanyl now? I don't know. I mean, I haven't heard a lot about bath salts lately, but... Yeah, it doesn't mean that it's not happening. I just, I just haven't heard too much about it lately. Yeah. Well, I think the difference is if they're not killing you, you know, it's the deaths from fentanyl that are so overwhelmingly terrifying, aren't they? Yeah, it's really driving everything. So, yes, you think we had a, a regulated market? We could actually, do you think that would stop the Mexicans importing it? Do you think it would stop the black market across the borders? I mean, you know, we can never really say that you can stop the black market, they're always going to find some new way of doing things. And even if we had a regulated market for drugs, I'm sure it would be very restricted and, you know, would not necessarily meet demand, quote unquote. So you'll always kind of have a black market. But certainly I think that, you know, it's one option to, to stop deaths because people talk about recovery and treatment and and abstinence but the reality as you've just said earlier is that a lot of people will not be abstinent and they won't stop using drugs and that's just the reality of the world that we live in right so what can you do really you know i think it's not really fair that these people have to die because they're drug users quite quite I may ask you another question. I'm fascinated. I didn't ask this question last week, but Canada avoided the OxyContin crisis. How do you guys manage to avoid what the Americans uh, suffered? I think we still did have an OxyContin crisis, but it was not the same scale. And that's simply because of the way that the American like healthcare system works. It's a much more free market, capitalist sort of market. So you can set up these you know, these pain clinics, quote unquote. Yeah. Whereas for Canada, you know, our healthcare system is, it's just much more tightly regulated basically. So it's just stricter and it's always kind of been that way to a degree. So yeah, I think it's just different, completely different systems of healthcare. But in Canada, is the, is health done province by province or is it done 
Is it a national thing? I, I don't even know that. Yeah, it's sort. It's basically province by province. It's that the province is the one who's like in charge of it, essentially. Yeah. So there are, are there provinces that are laxer on drugs, or are they all pretty much shoulder to shoulder? I mean, I don't think so, to be honest. Like, but I'm not sure. Like, it's a good question. I don't think there's a huge discrepancy the way that in the U.S. you could go to like Florida, for example. And it was kind of the hotbed for all of these Oxycontin clinics. I don't think we have an equivalent of that here. Well, I've got you. I must ask you about theater you know, because, of course, Canada was the, the first big country to, to legalize recreational cannabis. How do you think that's gone? That, it's funny. I actually used to cover that beet weed very closely for a few years. But really, like, a lot of the, a lot of the predictions and people were... People really were so dramatic about it, about all of these like doomsday predictions. Oh, what's going to happen with the kids? Oh, this and that. And really none of it came true. I mean, it was very honestly kind of boring. It was just like once the shops were set up and people got over the novelty of being able to go to a store and just buy weed, it was just like pretty normalized. There's been no increase in like teens using weed it's just kind of mundane, I would say. Like in my, in Toronto, there's a weed, there's a million weed stores. It's just like everywhere you turn, there's another, it's almost too much. I noticed that last weekend, yes. Next to every restaurant, there's a weed shop. <laughs> there's a weed store. It's like, come on, like it's like saturation. But yeah, honestly, like really not a lot has happened. It's just another, you know, industry. It's basically just another industry now that's there. Well, Manisha, great to talk to you. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about more about more about how they can get access to your writings and your your I think you've got some YouTube stuff, yes? For sure, yeah. If you go on YouTube and look for Beyond Fentanyl for under Vice News, that's where you will find our documentary. And it's about all the stuff that we talked about. Um, it's basically the new wave of the overdose crisis. And then for me, just Google my name, Manisha Krishnan, Vice News, and you'll find, you know, all of my stuff. It's pretty, pretty simple. Or you can find me on Twitter at Manisha Krishnan. Super. Well, I'll be tweeting about this interview when it goes out in a couple of weeks, and uh, hopefully you will get more followers as well. And thank awesome. you very much. It's, it's great to talk to you. And I say a pity we couldn't touch base last weekend in, in Toronto, but at some future date, I look forward to meeting you. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Dave. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Manisha. Take care. Cheers. <laughs>